Let us pray. Father, what a glorious day. A day that you've set aside for the benefit of our souls, for your own glory. We pray, God, that we would receive this word as your word. In fact, it is your word. May we receive it as truth. This is your mouth, Lord God. We hear from you in this word. Proclamation, we pray, Father, that you would settle our hearts, that you would grant that our affections would be continually changed by the power of the Holy Spirit and be drawn to that which you have named as right and true and good and holy. Food for our soul, we pray. For our own good, for your glory, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. No doubt you have noticed that the sermon scripture has been the same for the past several weeks. And there's a few, uh, a few reasons for that. There's a little bit of strategy involved in that. I think it's important for us to see as God's people that uh, there's a tremendous amount of depth in every passage of scripture. That, that's an important idea. And uh, I pray that the Lord has really set us up well for an appreciation for um, an overarching look at a passage of Scripture. We have spent um, a good number of weeks looking at entire books of the Bible. And in that, we uh, really, I think, have stepped into a grand purpose of the Lord, and that is to, to really get a grip of, of the meta-narrative of, of what it is that God is doing um, not only that, but what is, uh, what is the overall purpose? Sometimes it is very easy for us as those who rightly value and appreciate the exegesis of Scripture one verse at a time. Sometimes it is very easy actually to, over the course of an entire lifetime, miss the forest for the trees. And um, if you're like me, uh, you probably actually appreciate looking at a forest more than you do an individual tree. Um, and so, but that doesn't matter. It it's not, uh, doesn't matter which you would prefer to see. The reality is, is that it's important for us to uh, really to, to take in the fullness of Scripture. But uh, we're looking at this idea of putting on the new self. And the other thing that's particularly important as we look at this, as we see this phrase, uh, we're to put on the new self in verse 10. And if we were to read the entire letter of Colossians, which wouldn't take you probably more than 15 minutes, um, you might look at and see and be drawn into the exhortations and the admonitions to holiness. And it might be uh, that you miss the indicatives, the statements of fact that we talked a little bit about last week. But it might also be true that um, we've not really embraced what is foundational to this thing of putting on the new self. Because we read that in as God's people, um, and we expect that we can do that. We can put on the new self. And it isn't some kind of um, cruel joke on behalf of the Apostle Paul 
writing, of course, by the power of the Holy Spirit to set before us something that we cannot do. It's just that there's so much involved in putting on the new self. And that's the thing that, um, that I've, I've been wanting to help us all with, uh, certainly in appreciation for a book that I've mentioned uh, several times before, Walter Marshall's book, The Mystery of Godliness. And so, as we look at this, I want to draw your attention and stick to really uh, the task here at hand, uh, the theme of this particular sermon, the foundations of a holy walk, the love of God for his people. We have, to this point, um, talked about the mortification of sin through this passage, the putting off of the old self. We've considered what really is the substance of our new life in Christ. We've looked at the Savior, of course, the the book of Colossians, the little letter of Colossians, uh, among its highlights is this idea of the preeminence of Christ. Who is our Savior? What what has he done? What is his character, his personality? What, What exactly is he doing? What does it mean? We've discussed to put off the old self, to put on the new self. We We've considered the subtlety of trying to reform the old self with the law of God as opposed to acting out of the new self, union with Christ. Now, I recognize that that may seem a little bit strange, but the reality is is it really really is a different uh, way of thinking what it is that the Apostle Paul is encouraging us to do here because the natural man is inclined to appreciate um, certain aspects of holiness of a holy life and likely to appreciate uh, the reshaping and the reforming of old habits we we all of us have habits that are very poor it's just that we're inclined to want to renovate the old habits instead of working out of the new self. It's a different idea. And so, in that, I am persuaded, is one of the particularly important aspects of this idea. Can we merely step into joyful obedience to God, however? Are there things that must be set in place first? For instance, an inclination to actually obey. Now, that is part of the new birth, part of the regeneration. It's not, it's not the, the all of a sudden you have an opportunity to select good or bad. It's that, no, 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 you're inclined through your new birth to holiness. Are we persuaded of God's covenant love for us? Are we persuaded of God's forgiveness and reconciliation? Are we persuaded of the hope of eternity in heaven? Are we persuaded that God will give us the strength we need to follow and enjoy him? Because if if these things aren't true, we're we're never really going to be able to enter into the joy of holiness, the joy of putting on the new self. The Apostle Paul speaks about all these things, actually, in this passage of Scripture. And 
as I'll refer to later in the passage, there is this very important idea that the Apostle Paul touches on, this idea of learning Christ. How did you learn Christ? It's a vital question. It's a very, 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 very important question. How did you learn Christ? Epaphras was apparently uh, with the Apostle Paul when he wrote this letter, but Epaphras was also the pastor of the church at Colossae. He refers to Epaphras, to Epaphras as one of you, one of yours. Epaphras was the pastor. He was the one who taught them Christ. And we see the Apostle Paul's testimony of Epaphras was that he was a faithful minister of the gospel. And depending on how we learned Christ, we will enter into this sweet walk of holiness. Depending on what we think of God, of whether we have fully embraced and owned the fact that he has, in fact, forgiven us of all of our sins, that we stand before a loving Heavenly Father. That's his, that's his primary relationship to us, not as judge, not as accuser. There is an accuser in the scriptures, but it isn't God. It's Satan. That's his name. It's literally his name. And so it's important for us to be able to distinguish and to appreciate holiness for what it is. And as uh, perhaps you recall me mentioning before, the biblical idea, learning Christ properly, this idea of holiness, I think perhaps can be illustrated by maybe playing an instrument, or by entering into an activity that requires a certain skill. Now, if you want to play an instrument beautifully and you've never played it before, and I handed this instrument to you and looked down upon you condescendingly until you produced a beautiful tune, it would be a very frustrating experience. And depending on the relationship that you have with me, even if you were to take some lessons and learn how to play, it still might not really be an enjoyable experience because it might be that perhaps you're retaining some bitterness toward me as I expect that beautiful music. And, and then you, of course, also wouldn't enjoy playing as much either. But you see, the walk of Christ in holiness should be illustrated as one who has learned how to play an instrument beautifully and who fully delights herself in playing. That it's this, this joyful, life-giving activity. And that is this walk of holiness that the Scriptures call us to. Because, see, we, we have all kinds of different ideas based on how we learned Christ. But, but as we're inclined to that which is good in our regeneration, and, uh, and as we'll look today, the idea is that, that we have to own, to use a culturally uh, you know, accessible term in our day, we're owning the truth, right? 
That's, that's a little bit different than knowing the truth, right? Or understanding the truth, right? I can, um, I can understand how, you know, perhaps something works, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm a master or can duplicate its process. And so we're looking here at simply owning the love of God for his people. Really entering into this. Because that really is a foundation of a holy walk with the Lord that is, that is, that is truly and really beautiful to behold. That's the idea. And this, of course, is the sanctification life. I was just going over this uh, term, the process in the confession, the chapter in the confession of sanctification. And we see that um, sanctification uh, is described, uh, particularly in the catechism, as this real growth in holiness. See, because we've mentioned already that our justification is merely a declaration of being set apart for God. And it sets in motion this real work that will begin, of course. Now, you may say, well, why is it important in the life of a believer or in the presentation of Christ to the unredeemed? Why is this foundation of a holy walk, why is the love of God for his people so so urgent. And again, uh, we can think back to the illustration. You know, I, I may really, really desire to, to swim uh, and, and, uh, and to enjoy that, but if I don't know how to swim, I, I, it'll, it'll be a very futile activity. Right. But I can get to the point where I can enjoy that. And that's God's purpose. And it's based on this reality of the love of God for his people and our response to that is sometimes referred to simply as a reflex action. And that's one of the reasons why the proclamation of the word of God is called propositional. It, it is so stated that it demands an action. Why is it important? Well, there are a few reasons. Certainly this isn't an exhaustive list, but nonetheless, the reality is that some of us have a gloomy disposition. And this is incompatible with the realities of our walk with Christ and our resurrection life. It'll have a negative effect on our evangelistic efforts and it'll negatively impact every day of our lives and those around us. Our Savior has rescued us from an eternity of pain and suffering. And he's commissioned us with a very honorable work. A very dignified work. Walking in faithfulness before him and gathering in the elect. Something from which we should never recover. Some people kind of got over their salvation a long time ago. Kind of like the grumpy old man. When you ask him how he's doing, he says, I was okay, but I got over it. 
Some are stuck in deeply formed ruts of some sub-Christian practice. Gaining self-awareness through reflecting on the Word of God is rare and it's unnatural, but it's necessary. Some don't consider it a priority of the redeemed to grow in holiness. That is, consciously living in light of who we are as the royal children of God. Consequently, they look just like the world. It is a poor reflection, of course, of what it is that the Lord has done. Sometimes their understanding of freedom from the law of God means they live in a sort of evangelical licentiousness, free from judgment. Maybe they're overwhelmed with life and are just trying to make it. But these don't realize that a walk in holiness will actually bring into their lives an order and a joy that will allow them to really walk in the newness of life. Some are still recovering from learning Christ in a way that was really works righteousness. And while insisting on freedom from the law, they rob themselves of fellowship with Christ and his people. Because they've not understood the simple fact that like loves like. Like loves like. Now, all I mean by that is simply that we realize in our own human experience that we like to be around people that are like us. Now, I understand, no doubt, sometimes you get a little bit jazzed over the guy that's really strange. You know, it's like, wow, man, that was quite an experience. You know, but the reality is, is those people that we're going to be closest to, they're like us. And we can only grow in our delight and love for God when we become and as we become more like him. Now, often when two people are together and they want to enjoy themselves more fully in their relationship, of course, there's give and take there. There's, there's this coming together in a sense, right? But what do we know about God? Well, we know that there's, there's no lack of perfection in him. He d- there's no progress. He's not going to become like us, right, so that we can then enjoy him more fully. That, in fact, is a very popular thing that's occurring in these days. Uh, That is, for me to describe God uh, more like a man. And the reason that I might want to do that is because it would make you feel better and make you feel like you are actually like him when, in fact, you aren't. Because God says of himself, most notably in Psalm 50, that I'm not like you although you thought I was. But the reality is, as we grow in grace and holiness, we will enjoy God more. We will enjoy his love more. We will enjoy our love for him more. The people around us will delight themselves more fully in our relationship with God, and they will see these reflex right actions of what happens when We're truly owning the love of God. Some live in a continual turmoil of sin's burden. Never having taken in the real hope of Christ, which included a cancellation of their debt of sin. 
and reconciliation with God, making it difficult for them to love God. Unable to distinguish between the accusations of the devil and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't it often happen with us when we have come in earnest as a response of being made anew in the Lord Jesus Christ and we still seem to be overburdened by our own sinfulness? That's part of John Bunyan's story in his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. He labored and struggled over receiving the forgiveness of sins. But what is the reality of that? Well, the reality of that is that the accuser, Satan, continues to accuse us of sins that have been forgiven. And so what Bunyan discovered certainly is something that we need to discover day in and day out, and that is when we go to the Father and we tell on Satan... What does he say to us? I have no record of that. We're good. We're good. Go out and do great things. The Lord Jesus said, I am with you. Always. Even to the end of the age. Some are simply dissatisfied with the life God has given them. And they're persuaded God is making life difficult for them, making it difficult for them to really love God. Since they live in a state of unbelief about the basics of the resurrection life. Accusing a loving Heavenly Father of making your life miserable is a serious charge. He doesn't do that. It's not in his character. That's not who he is. That's not what's happening. That's not a picture of reality. So we are looking at the mortification of sin. We're looking at what really is the substance of our new life in Christ. Today, as I mentioned, we're looking simply at owning as God's people the love of God for his people. Now this is something, of course, the unredeemed can't claim. They They've not been regenerated. They don't even have a beginning of understanding this. And we certainly beg the Lord to grant them life. And so I'd like to look at a few aspects of this letter as we use this concept of putting on the new self in chapter 3, verse 10, as we look at these foundations that the Apostle Paul really, in fact, has laid out for the Colossians uh, in this process of holiness, of maturity. And I'd like to draw your attention uh, first to chapter 1 in the letter, verses 3 through 8. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has in, 
which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. The Apostle Paul introduces this letter to the Colossians. We've discussed uh, some of the context of their own lives as they were working through uh, what is referred to as the Colossian heresy, this idea that Christ was insufficient for them. Uh, he doesn't pull any punches with calling them to holiness, but he, he's very clear about the foundations of a holy walk. And it begins here. And we can look at the conspicuous aspect of the walk of the Colossians. What is it? In other words, the Apostle Paul commends them for a certain notorious aspect of their, of their walk, of their relationship with Christ. What is it? Well, there's not actually any surprises. It's faith, hope, and love. I mean, it's stated right here in this introduction. Faith, hope, love, and the bearing of fruit. This is how they learned Christ. This is how they learned Christ from Epaphras, who is stated here in verse 7, a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. This reflex character of their walk is, is why? Well, verse 5 says, uh, it's because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And this is one of the most important aspects of the foundations of a holy walk, and that is simply this idea of our hope of an eternity in heaven. From our hope springs the reflex of love for God and his people. Now what is hope? A joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. Hope is confidence in that of which one is persuaded is certain. You may say, well, I don't have this. How do I get it? Well, Paul's answer is in verses 7 and 9 here in this chapter, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved servant, And he's asking that they may be filled with knowledge in verse 9 of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We can't really walk out our faith and holy living unless we're fully persuaded of the hope we have in Christ of a marvelous eternity with him in heaven. So the question for us, are you fully persuaded of this hope of heaven for yourself? Are you fully persuaded of this hope of heaven for yourself? Do you believe what God said is true? The Lord Jesus Christ said, I go to prepare a place for you. Do you believe that? Because if you don't believe that, it's really going to be impossible for you to enter into the joy of a holy walk. Verse 11, he says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. 
for all endurance and patience with joy. Paul encourages them further in this reflex action of their faith that they would not merely have endurance and patience, but that this endurance and patience would be characterized with joy, a cheerful, calm delight. And so the Apostle Paul is getting at the simple fact there's endurance and patience and there's endurance and patience with joy. The difference is the love of God. The difference is the hope of eternity. You see, because if we're fully persuaded of our uh, place in eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ, if we're fully persuaded that uh, our Father in heaven, his uh, attitude toward us is one of complete forgiveness and reconciliation, that he loves us as adopted children that are in permanent covenant love with him. If we don't have that kind of persuasion, then a holy walk with the Lord is really going to be impossible. Now, what I don't want you to have the idea of here is that somehow you need to be in this perfect state of persuasiveness here. Right? But the point is, is that before we can really enter into a delightful uh, walk with him of putting off the old self and putting on the new here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, then we, we won't be able to do that. Now, the reality is, is that I trust, unfortunately, most people who in fact are redeemed really struggle with this. And that's why the Apostle Paul directs their attention back to what? He doesn't direct them back to their feelings. He doesn't ask them to go back and look on their calendars when they walk the aisle. He doesn't say any of that. Right? He directs them back to the truth of God. What is the truth of God? What did the Lord Jesus say? Right? What is the truth of how God looks at you, the redeemed? Remember, we're not yet putting on the new self. We're establishing the necessary foundation for our walk in holiness by considering the reality of the hope in us of our future in heaven with Christ. And in a sense, we're measuring it by the level of joy we have in endurance and patience. Now, this isn't outside of the realm of our experience. Perhaps a simple explanation would be the experience of a homeschooling mother with little children. That's a picture of patience with joy. But one of the reasons that she can endure with such patience and joy is because in a few hours, the school day will be over. And they're going to go outside and play. The hope of heaven. Right? If there was no expectation 
If the school day was literally 18 hours a day for mom and the children, that would have a significant impact on the joy. Right? But you look at her and you say, well, how can you do that? Well, because I know that I'm not going to be teaching little Timmy how to read in 20 years. He'll know how. Right? There's this joy. This is in our common experience, right? But, of course, we multiply that to an infinite level when we anticipate heaven and the realities of heaven and our hope of heaven. And it doesn't mean that we diminish the harsh realities of earth, but it does change our attitude. You say, well, who, who set me in this place? Who, who was it that put me on this path of holiness? Who was it that set me in this situation? Or was it you? No, it wasn't you. The Apostle Paul addresses it in the next verse, in verse 12 of chapter 1. The Father qualified you. The Father qualified you. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And one of the aspects of the Colossian heresy is referenced in chapter 2, verse 18, where he says, let no one disqualify you. Your relationship and your qualifications for heaven as the redeemed are permanent. They cannot be removed. The Father has qualified you. While it is an oft-repeated thing in the lives of our families, what did mommy say? What the Apostle Paul is saying here is what did the Father say? Because, again, the implication is, well, that's the way it is. <laughs> that's the way it is. Don't let anyone disqualify you. That's what he's saying. Now, as we move on, a key component of this foundation for holiness is being persuaded of our position in Christ. Verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1 as being delivered from darkness and forgiven. Last week, we affirmed that our salvation involved this incredible rescue referred to in these two verses, 13 and 14. But our question to ourselves is, are you fully persuaded that you are fully forgiven? That you're in a relationship with the Father of unconditional love because of Christ's obedience applied to you? Without this understanding of complete forgiveness, you'll not be able to really enter into the royal activities of the work of the kingdom. Now, this is also not out of our personal human experience, although 
for the most part, it's in the negative. So there you are at work, and you do something really, really stupid. Some of you have been there. The boss finds out. Now, the boss is persuaded that you are worth retaining, right? Uh, that he, he sees something in you. But every time you go up to his office now, you're kind of looking at your shoes, right? And sometimes you kind of catch his eye. He's got kind of that look in his eye. That look like he's thinking about that stupid thing you did a while back. Do we sometimes go to the Father like that? You see, that's not a picture of reality. Because God, God doesn't treat us like that. If we're not persuaded that we're fully forgiven, that when we approach the Father, this throne of grace, because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, he isn't standing over us, drumming his fingers, as it were, thinking about all of those stupid things that we did. Fully forgiven. Because as we've mentioned before, God can do something, this isn't surprising to us, God can do something that we can't do. Although we need to learn how. And that is to forget our past sins. With the exception of learning from them. Are you fully persuaded that you're fully forgiven? That you're in a relationship with the Father of unconditional love because of Christ's obedience applied to you? Without this understanding of complete forgiveness, you'll not be able to really enter into the royal activities of the work of the kingdom. In 127, the Apostle Paul summarizes the gospel as Christ in you, the hope of glory. And Paul summarizes his commission from Christ to present the elect mature in Christ. Verse 28, chapter 1. Paul summarizes the character of his own work as toil and struggle with all energy. So the heart of this letter is encouragement for a joyful faith walk with Christ. So what is Paul getting at here at the end of chapter 1 here? The point is, is that the sum total, the focus, the laser focus of the Apostle Paul and his energies toward the church at Colossae and all the other churches is that they be presented as mature in Christ. We're going somewhere. Right? God sets us on pilgrimage. We're, we're moving along. There's a place to go. There's, there's love to be enlivened and deepened. There's a kingdom to gather up of the elect. There is deeper love and fellowship with the Lord. And the Apostle Paul, of course, is a great model for us in that. Maturing in Christ. It all starts again with a full persuasion of the forgiveness of God for us. The full persuasion 
of his love for us, the full persuasion that we have been rescued from darkness into light. I'll draw your attention to chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, this is a very, very important aspect of this letter. I'm hoping that among the things that will echo in your mind after this passage of Scripture is learning Christ. But also, how did you learn Christ? Because the reality is is that our walk is going to reflect how we learned Christ. When I was younger, I used to teach swimming. I had to learn how to swim before I could do that. And it's interesting because the swim teachers, you know, you could look at the students and you could say, yeah, I know who your teacher was. I can see that. So the reality is, is that the way that we learned Christ was not in theological perfection for any of us. However, we walk the way we learned Christ. And so a tremendous aspect of the work of the ministry is to unlearn those things that were unbiblical in the way you learn Christ. And then to learn Christ anew. None of us came to Christ in a theologically perfect environment. I've mentioned already some of the key challenges to some of the basic and unfortunate aberrations of free grace. Suffice it to say that if I'm depending upon my own performance to maintain my adoption papers with the Lord Jesus Christ, then I have learned Christ improperly. If I am persuaded that a holy walk with the Lord is like taking bad medicine, then I've learned Christ in an unbiblical way. If I'm persuaded um, that the Father is a harsh ogre, expecting for me to establish my own righteousness by law-keeping, 
and yet somehow maintaining an important aspect of the atonement of Christ in the midst of that, then I have learned Christ in an unbiblical way. If I embrace some of the aberrations of this idea that the New Testament creates a new law of love to God and love to people, and that therefore the law is simpler now so that I can do it, that would also be to learn Christ in an unbiblical way. If you're persuaded that your performance maintains your adoption status, or that the Father has no desire to see you holy, you'll never joyfully enter into living out of the new self with the strength God has promised. You see, you can't present yourself perfect. But you can present yourself perfect in Christ. And there's a world of difference between the two. Of course, Christ is the difference. You know, I grew up with the impression that I could present myself perfect after my redemption. And I languished under the alternating thoughts of an unloving God, an inflated understanding of my own sanctification, or depressing thoughts of the continual weight of my sin, which had been forgiven. This is, this is the reason that there is such sobriety and urgency to those who would teach the truth of God. It takes a very long time to unlearn unbiblical notions of Christ. And it has a horrifying impact on the people around us. And that's why the Apostle Paul, time and time again, focuses on this idea of what did the Father say? What came out of the mouth of God? What is the truth of the word? Right. Paul indicates that the grand purpose of this letter was to encourage the Colossians in their growing holy walk with the Lord. That they would be assured of their position in Christ, the absolute priority Otherwise, they cannot obey God with a clear conscience. Now, <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, I read the letter of Colossians as I have a good number of times over the past month, and, and it's easy to be drawn into uh, the lists, right? I value lists. Right? I value, right, a, a discipled walk. Right? We see that as freeing, and in fact it is. And as I tell you that the Apostle Paul's real purpose in this letter is to encourage, it may be a little bit of a letdown to you. It may seem soft, right? But as you look at the Apostle Paul's argument in the letter, you begin to understand that he isn't backing away from the urgency of a holy walk, but he's understanding the foundation of the walk is based on encouraging God's people in their assurance of where they stand with God, owning the love relationship with God. I draw your attention 
as we close to chapter 4 in verse 7. So he's rounding out the letter. He's closing it up here. Chapter 4, verse 7, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. Apostle Paul, he was a beloved minister. People wanted to know how he was doing. Tychicus did that. Verse 8 says, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. I'm not making this up. That's what the word of God says. Timothy wrote the letter to encourage their hearts. It's so important. Verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Why? Why is, why is Epaphras always struggling in his prayers on their behalf? That you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. If we're going to be who we are in Christ, right? The old indicative and the imperative. We're in Christ, be who we are in Christ. We've got to know what it is that we are. Owned by a Savior in a relationship of love. Our mature assurance of our position in Christ is key to our holy walk of faith.